Ozan Zambe Yesu mwana Zambe bisika pependi na yo mwana Zambe ukitakitana boso mwana Zambe bisika pembeni na yo mwana Zambe na merite nangaite papa mwana Yesu mwana Zambe na kokoma sokyo batelinga na kokoma sokyo budelingai na kokoma sokyo budelingai papa Yesu mwana Zambe a your highly exalted father lord almighty we want to worship and bless your holy name king of glory ofandina kiti ya boko simwana nzambe ofandina ngwende ya boko simwana nzambe lokumwe zaya yo mwana nzambe the glory belongs to your king of glory your highly exalted over each and everything and there is no one that should be like you and will ever be like you we bless you for this week that you've given us and the time that you continue giving us to come before you in prayer to worship your king of glory glory to lift above each and everything O king of majesty i want to pray that in the situation that we are in committing ourselves and dedicating ourselves for the world of this year your power and your glory shall be bestowed upon us lord and nothing shall stand before us as an idol especially when the times come and they are hard and we look at the wicked prospering O king of glory and we that are walking righteously are trying to make ends meet and they cannot. I want to pray that your people shall not be discouraged, O King of Glory. Those that are waiting on you in various areas of life, in their marriages, in their financial breakthrough, in their ministries, in their healing, in various things in life, O King of Glory. They seem to be at sixes and sevens and losing out, O Lord. And when they look at the wicked, they seem to be prospering and they feel like they're wasting time to follow you up. I want to pray, Lord, that you shall strengthen us and help us to know that when everything is without you, it is nothing. Come, Lord, and help us to deal with the Jeroboam syndrome in our lives. We bless you, Lord. We worship you. Ozanza kokitena motote papa mulinyeria yesu kristo mukama wafe we have prayed and believed. Amen. 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 A blessed, wonderful day, my dear friend, wherever you're picking this message from. May the Lord bless you so abundantly. My name is Reverend David Kagwa. Reaching you with this message, I feel energized and encouraged by the Lord to deliver this message to you wherever you may be as you receive it, my dear friend. I am nearly certain that as you walked out of your room today, your house, your mansion, wherever you may be, you are moving out to go forward. You're moving out to go forward. You want to make some progress. You want to get into some kind of prosperity. Even if you look at a young boy going to school, they are definitely uh, somehow pursuing a dream. If you look at a taxi, you're going to see those mottos that are written on them. And they say, you know, I'm created to be rich. I'm, I'm, I'm a winner. That kind of stuff. People are moving forward. You're probably out to do your job, do your work, get some money, pay a date or something like that. But somehow you have some plan where you want to, in one way or the other, prosper. But friend, quite often times you're going to find that the people who love the Lord the most are not going to be the most blessed. And please understand me, I'm putting blessed into inverted commas uh, there. They are not going to be the most prosperous. You're going to sometimes be perturbed by the conundrum of the wicked doing well or prospering. And then there's a question, and many believers are getting so discouraged, and I just want to pray that you not fall into the ploy and the fray of those kind of people. Today on our 50th day, conference day, we are here to talk about a topic that is entitled Dealing with the Jeroboam Syndrome, when having it all is nothing. 
dealing with the Jeroboam syndrome when having it all is nothing. Praise the Lord. Our theme, the entire theme of the conference is entitled, Only by Faith Shall You Stand. But one thing that really, really unravels the children of God, that really shakes their foundation, is this theme of prosperity. When you look at yourself and you're fasting and you're walking well with the Lord and you're born again and you're doing things the right way and things don't add up, Things don't add up and the wicked seem to be doing well. This kind of conundrum is beating so many people in their walk of faith and it confuses them. Brother, sister, we are here to let the Holy Spirit edify us and share with us and direct us and strengthen us and get us back into course and get to know how are we meant to live. And does it actually mean that when you have it all, then you have everything? We want to see that. Now, the passage of scripture that we have today before us is Second Kings 14, 23 to 29. Second Kings chapter 14, verse 23 to 29. That is what we are going to be looking at, my dear friend, a glorious, glorious scripture if studied well under its context. Second uh, Kings 14, 23 to 29 says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. Take note of that. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea. That is great. In accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from gath Hepha. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. As for the other events of Jeroboam's reign, all he did and his military achievements, including how he recovered from Israel, both Damascus, take note of that, and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the Annals of the Kings of Israel? Jeroboam rested with his ancestors, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, succeeded him as king. Friends, there is more uh, to what meets the eye here. It is a glorious, glorious passage. And I know that the Holy Spirit is going to be expounding this very well for us to get to understand it. Moving forward and laying the ground, um, these books, these historical books, Samuel, um, Kings, are basically um, geared to exalting the Lord and His sovereignty. Uh, basically, that is the essence over and above the gods of the kingdoms and also the situations of the people of God himself in Israel itself. That, that, that is one of the most eminent, uh, preeminent um, themes of these books. The, the, the intention is basically to exalt the Lord. And a general pattern usually plays out in the sense that if a kingdom gets to honor the Lord, if Israel in, in its heydays or Judah honored the Lord and submitted to, to him, um, the normal practice was that God would bless them and God would prosper them. And when 
a king desecrated himself and did not honor the ways of the Lord and worshipped other gods. Usually, it followed up that God would beat them down and would not bless them. That was the trend. God exalted himself as not just the God of Israel, but also the God of the surrounding nations and the whole world. This is why it was common for you to see prophets like Elisha prophesying to nations like Aram. You see, Jonah going to nations like Nineveh. God is the God of the entire world. That is the theme. But you're going to remember that God is on a mission throughout the Bible at this point of bringing a savior whom he first announces in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 as the son of a woman. Now, through these books of the kings, it becomes eminent and evident that definitely these human kings were not going to help um, this vision of God in any way. And therefore God later works out a plan of bringing a king of his own um, through the lineage of David as he made a covenant that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12 to 16. He says that they shall ever be a, a, a king that shall reign or sit on the seat of David, which later translates into Christ himself as the Messiah, who comes as the king that is going to reign in the midst of his people. You remember, even the covenant that he makes with Abraham, he says that I shall make you a blessing, and every nation that blesses you shall be blessed. I shall give you a land and an offspring, and I shall be your God, and you shall be my people. So ultimately, this comes out and plays out in the millennium when God eventually comes and establishes um, the kingdom down here on earth and Christ comes and is reigning in Jerusalem. Therefore, it's a long journey. Don't just look at these kings and you think they are going to end there. Amen? That is how it works. Now, friends, the way it plays out is that God originally intended to be the king of these people, but they rejected him. You remember in the days of Samuel, they rejected him and asked for a king. And, and God said, give them a king. And God eventually gave them King Saul, and after King Saul, Ishbosheth uh, reigned a little bit, I think for about two years. And then after Saul, uh, substantively, David came, came in as the greatest of um, kings in Israel. And that will never change. And even in the millennium, God is going to reign with uh, David. And uh, you see, that, that is what it is. Now, after David, Solomon came in and both of these were reigning for, actually the three of them were reigning for 40 years each. And friends, Saul enraged the Lord. He annoyed the Lord. But because God had gotten into a covenant with David and loved David, he said he was going to split that kingdom, but he wasn't going to do it. He wasn't going to do it in the days of Solomon. Why? Because of David, his servant, who had been faithful unto him, except in the matter of Uriah and a few other matters. But of course, God was looking at the disposition of David's heart when he made that comment. You get that? Now, after Solomon was gone, the kingdom was divided at that point. It was divided into two. Now, Solomon had a servant called Jeroboam. Take note of that. There are two Jeroboams in the Bible, and you need to take note of that in as far as leadership is concerned in Israel. Now, Solomon had a servant called Jeroboam, and um, this is the man that prophet Ahijah prophesied about that would take over the kingdom, the biggest chunk of the kingdom from Solomon. And from that point, the kingdom, the united kingdom of Israel was separated. 
Of course, we know that God is going to come and he will regather his people into one kingdom in the millennium and thereafter. You see, this is what um, the, 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 the feast of both is about prophetically. Now, what happened was that this man went to the north with 10 tribes. And for the sake of David and Jerusalem, the place where God had chosen to have his name abide, God left the son of Solomon two tribes, and that is effectively Judah and Benjamin. So the southern kingdom was called Judah, and the northern kingdom was called Israel. Now, I want you to take note of this. This is where the premise of this message is. Inasmuch as these kingdoms were separated, the worship mandate was left with the south. You remember that when they were entering the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God told them that you're getting into a land that is proliferated with various gods. And I'm removing those people, not because you're greater than them, but because they have chosen to worship other gods. Do not worship their gods. When you get in there and he let their altars, burn them down, raise them down. And I shall appoint a place for myself where you shall worship me. That place later in Deuteronomy 12, 5, 12, and also First Chronicles 6, 6, and First Chronicles 6, 12, turns out to have been Jerusalem. Now, when they separated this, the mandate, the worship mandate remained in the south. And friends, this is where the problem was. Now, when this man started ruling in, um, in Israel, he feared and he made the greatest of mistakes that anyone could have made in his position at that point. This is what he says in 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 25. I want to read that, friends, so you can follow it up. That is where the premise of this message is. We need to get to understand it. The Bible says, in First uh, Kings 12 of 25, then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Penuel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom is now likely to revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, you hear that? This was an out of convenience that he's setting up. They will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to the king, Rehoboam. Now listen to this, a note here. Why must someone move in fear? If God has given you the kingdom, why wouldn't he sustain it? You see that? He wickedly moved away from the Lord under fear. This is why you need to deal with fear in your life, my dear friend. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods. Oh my, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt? One he set up in Bethel, take note of that name, and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Now, friends, that is where we are. Israel had about 19 kings in the divided kingdom, minus, um, minus um, Saul, Ishbosheth, and David, and Solomon that led it as um, a, a, a joint or united kingdom. There are about 19 uh, kings, but now the king we are speaking about is called Jeroboam II. The Jeroboam, the Jeroboam that I've just spoken about is called Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, the man that 
he introduced, of course, Solomon had in one way introduced it, but this man took it another level. Ah, yeah. And then Ahab took it another level, that kind of thing. He introduced this devil worship effectively in the northern kingdom because of his fear, just like we've had, not wanting people to go back to worship in Jerusalem because he thought then he could have lost kingship. Why must you live in fear? And yet God has done this already. He was the 13th king of the 19 in the divided kingdom. And friends, I want you to understand that by the time he came to reign, Israel was in a despicable state. It was being tortured by especially the Armenians or the Assyrians. Let me just read um, 2 Kings uh, chapter 13 for you to get to realize the situation and how it was in those days for us to set a historical cultural context that is uh, proper for us to be able to discern what the Spirit of God has for us to get to understand today. In 2 Kings and chapter 13, you realize the deplorable state of the nation of Israel at that particular point. And friends, you need to note that there was not a single holy king in Israel. It was just a matter of degree. Judah had his messes, but it had quite some kings that stood for some time. And that is why Judah stayed for much longer than Israel before being taken into captivity. Second Kings 13, 1 to 3 says, In the 23rd year of Joash, son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoiahaz, son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned for 17 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord by following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the one that we started with, which had caused Israel to commit and did not turn away from them. So the Lord's anger burnt against Israel. And for a long time, he kept them under the power of Hazael, king of Aram, and Benhadad, his son. And you know, these had been anointed by Elisha. Can you imagine? They had been anointed by, Hazael had been anointed by Elisha. If you go to chapter 8, you get to see that. And then Jehoiah sought the Lord's face, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw how severely the king of Aram was oppressing Israel. The Lord provided a deliverer for Israel, and they escaped from the power of Aram. So the Israelites lived in their own homes as they had before. But they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. They continued, they continued in them. Also the Asherapo remained standing in Samaria. A, verse 7 is worth noting in 2 Kings 13. Now, nothing had been left of the army of Jehoiahaz except 50 horsemen. Can you imagine? 10 chariots and 10,000 foot soldiers. <laughs> For the king of Aram had destroyed the rest and made them like the dust at the threshing time. That is what I wanted to note. By the time Jeroboam comes to the throne, by the time he ascended to the throne, um, Israel was in a pathetic state. It was so weak, terribly weakened. Now, friends, I, I want you to look at what the Lord does during the time of Jeroboam, during the time of Jeroboam II. I want us to now look at Jeroboam's legacy. Now, this is summarized in the passage that we've just done in um, 2 Kings 14, 23, 29. A very amazing legacy. Now, let me make note of this even before we go any further. We are saying that um, as an exception and not the rule, usually, or as a rule, 
as a rule, let me start with the rule. As a rule, when a king was righteous and submitted to God, God blessed them and God blessed the people. There was prosperity and they usually reigned for long. When a king did not submit, God beat them up. He did not bless them. He didn't. But you're going to realize that Jeroboam was evil, but during his time, the longest actually amongst the the, the 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 leadership of the divided kings in Israel. He he reigns the longest. You know, he reigned for 41 years. In fact, even if you put it together, he reigned longer than Saul, David, and and and, and Solomon. Solomon and David and Saul did 40 years. Yeah. Uh, this man is doing 41 years. The only exception was in Judah with, with, with Manasseh um reigning, I think up to 55 years and then uh, Uzziah reigning up to 52 years you see but this side of Israel including David himself Jeroboam as if as he was reigned the longest and he had the most prosperous reign that could be uh, compared to the one of David and Solomon but no one else could ever compare to him why did God permit that to happen let us look at the legacy of 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 Jeroboam one, the Bible says, um, the first legacy is that he ruled the longest period, just like I've just mentioned here. If you look at that in um, um, 2 Kings 14, 23, it says that he reigned for 41 years. Even when he was evil, the only person that beats him up, like I said, is Manasseh of Judah. But we are not talking of Judah now, we are talking of Israel and also Uzziah of, uh, of Judah. But even if you bring David in the picture, he only reigned for 40 years. Solomon, 40 years. Saul, 40 years. Yeah. Friends, let me tell you one thing. The wicked can have a picture of prosperity. They are people that you look at, the money that they have, the kind of wheels that they drive. My friend, they are wives. <laughs> Ask this man called Asaph, the one that penned Psalm 73. Eh? The, 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 those, those men. You see, he says, God, why do the wicked do not go down uh, suffering? They, they, they live in prosperity. We are going to see all these things. Don't get discouraged about this. You see, he's reigning for a very long time. Secondly, the Bible says he did evil in accordance with the way of Jeroboam, which I've already elucidated in detail that I won't go back into. Son of Nebat. This is what verse 24 says. You see, where is the connection? He is walking in evil and is reigning for a very long time. Now listen to the third one. He restored Israel to its greatest ever since David and Solomon. He restored Israel to its greatest. If you want to understand how wealthy these people were during this time, you need to go to the book of Amos. Amos was the prophet that prophesied at the time of this man, Jeroboam. Amos came from the south in Judah and God commissioned him to the north. But look at what Amos says about the time of these people in Amos chapter 6 verse 1 the Bible says woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come go to Kauni and look at it go from there to the great Hamath you hear that and then go down to Gath in Philistia are they better rough than your two kingdoms is their land larger than yours you put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. Listen to what they were doing. You lie on beds adorned with ivory. You see, they were lying on beds of ivory. Do you know how expensive ivory is? And there were so many, 
there was a work a, a work of archaeology that was recently done in Israel and uh, in that area of Bethel where uh, Jeroboam was and all those areas of Samaria and they found all these things they are there you see and lodge on your couches you see these people had winter houses they also had summer houses <laughs> so rich you dine on choice lambs choice and fattened calves you strum away on your harps like david and improvise on musical instruments you drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions they were not drinking in normal um, cups they were drinking in goblets in bowls like sacrificial bowls that is an abundance my friend <laughs> you see that mm? and use the finest lotions eh? but you do not grieve over the ruin of joseph therefore will be among the first to go into exile i wanted to show you that they were very prosperous very rich very rich they did a lot of business they had a lot of wealth these people but look at their spiritual state just look at the state of their spiritual health in amos 5 21 what does the lord say what does the lord say i hate i despise your religious festivals your assemblies are a stench to me even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings i will not accept them though you bring choice fellowship offerings i will have no regard for them away with the noise of your songs i will not listen to the music of your harps but let justice roll like a river righteousness like a never failing stream you hear that they were so rich so rich and then they were persecuting the poor tormenting them taking sandals away from them cheating them of their inheritance doing things against the work of the lord secondly they still worshipped at bethel and at dan like i showed you what jeroboam the son of nebat had established but friends why did they continue to be prosperous here is the reason part of the legacy of um this man um jeroboam the second the lord's grace and salvation was at work in jeroboam because of the covenant that god had made with you know israel you see and actually what jonah went ahead to mention i failed to find this prophecy in the bible it seems not to have been recorded specifically but jonah made a prophecy look at uh, the irony here that we have before us in second uh, kings 14 26 27 we are going to see the reason why these people remained prosperous even when they were walking in evil and this is the conundrum that we have as believers sometimes we want to quit and we don't understand that it's the grace of god that sustains these people uh, so so they can turn around and they don't listen to what he says in verse 26 the lord had seen how bitterly everyone in israel whether slave or free was suffering there was no one to help them and since the lord had not said he would blot out the name of israel from under heaven he saved them by the hand of jeroboam son of jehoach you you, you hear that god because of his grace and love not because they were holy and worthy goes right ahead and had pity and mercy upon them just like in the days of exodus like we see him saying that i've heard your cry and i've come it was the grace of god the intention was that they would turn around because he saw that they were falling remember there was a prophecy that had been made in the days of jehu that he would save them up to the fourth generation and it was elapsing with this jeroboam here you see that but look at what happened look at what happened the greatest of achievements including conquering syria was under the belt of this man jeroboam look at verse 28 
Verse 28 says, As for the other events of Jeroboam's reign, all he did, and his military achievements, including how he recovered for Israel, both Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Now, if you read that lightly and gloss over it, you cannot understand it. But when he speaks of Damascus, he's speaking of the capital of Syria. When he speaks of Amath, he's speaking of places that had already been taken by these people. Syria, hitherto, to the coming of the reign of Jeroboam, was battering them up. It was raining over them. But when he goes and he takes Syria over, this was an insurmountable achievement. But why was this happening? The grace of God that was forbearing with them such that they could get transformed. And friends, not after long, this after the, the leadership of the reign of um, Jeroboam, it took just about 30 years and Israel was no more as a kingdom. Friends, let me tell you, I am speaking and God is speaking to all of us, me inclusive, to someone today that is walking the right way with the Lord. But you simply cannot find, so to say, a blessing as people want to call it. You cannot see yourself prospering in any way. You just can't see yourself prospering. You can't. Friends, I'm here to encourage you. Prosperity is not basically the material things, money, fame, pleasure, and honor as people treat it. Not at all. People asking questions, and it is an age-old question. People ask, why do these people prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? And yet for us, we are not. You fast, you pray, you're walking in righteousness. You're looking for a child up to this point, you haven't found them. And look at the wicked. They find them and they get them. You know, you're being faithful at office. You don't cheat. You don't do this or the other. You're walking the right way and you're not appreciated. And what happens? Uh, what happens? It is the other people that get promoted. And you feel like your, your heart is giving way. You're the good wife. You submit to your husband. He doesn't do a proper thing before you. Not a car, not a piece of land, nothing. But you look at slats. They have seven. Seven men, and they have mansions and bungalows and cars and the other. And you look at yourself and like, God is unfair. This shouldn't be happening to me. And you want to quit on the Lord. Today we are here to answer the question. Dealing with the Jeroboam syndrome, when having it all is nothing. Friend, do they really have life? Do the wicked have life? Let us answer that quickly. Uh, you're going to bear with me. It is a packed message, but we really need the wall of it. We really need the wall of it, and I'm going to do the wall of it. Now, let me just get into the age-old question. The age-old question that says, that perturbs so many people, why do the wicked prosper? Or do they prosper anyway? Do they prosper? <laughs> let me get two of the age-old um, believers that are trusted and uh, confirmed that we are asking questions that we are asking today also. Look at what Job asks and says in Job 21. Job 21, verse 7. Job 21, 7. What does he say? He says, <laughs> I love this. Why do the wicked live on? Growing old and increasing in power. They see their children established around them. Their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The road of God is not on them. Their bulls never fail to breed. Their cows carve and do not miscarry. <laughs> <laughs> they send forth their children as a flock. Their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of the tambourine and lyre. They make merry to the sound of the pipe. 
They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. But later he discovers that it doesn't end like that. He says in verse 18, How often are they like straw before the wind, like chaff swept away by the girl? That is job for you. He says they seem to be doing well. Their cattle is doing well. Their children do well. Everything seems to be okay. But their end, friend, their end, like he realizes, doesn't work out well. It doesn't. Friend, you're not the only one with this kind of question, you know, bothering you. Uh, the, the other saint that was perturbed by this uh, same problem is Jeremiah in Jeremiah 12. Listen to what he says, Jeremiah 12.1. He says, you are always righteous, Lord. When I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the world of the wicked prosper? <laughs> Why do all the faithless live at ease? You have planted them and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Yet you know me, O Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field wither? You hear that? Jeremiah had the same problem also. I, I think you can see that. But then God answers him in verse 5 and he says, If you have rest with men on foot and they have won you out, how can you compete with horses? <laughs> if you stumble in self in, in, in self-country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Your relatives, members of your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Don't trust them, though they speak well of you. God is saying, if you can't deal with this little thing and get to understand that the wicked simply seem to be doing well, but they don't, and they are persecuting you and they're giving you pain, but I'm on your side. If you can't deal with those people, how are you going to deal with such a problem of doubting what I'm doing? And look at how he answers him in a grand way in verse 14. And he says in verse 14, this is what the Lord says, as for all the wicked neighbors who says the inheritance I gave to my people Israel, I will uproot them from their lands and I will uproot the people of Judah from among them. But after I uproot them, I will again have compassion and will bring each of them back to their own inheritance. In other words, he says, for the wicked, they have no future. I'm uprooting them. For my people, I'm going to restore them. Friends, this is what it is. This is what it is. How shall we handle this situation then? Let me just do some brief, um, you know, uh, let, let me get to do some brief exhortation here before you that is going to lift up your spirits and lift up your heart and encourage your friend and sower you up like an ego into the third heaven experience. And then you'll be able to stand, friend, and be encouraged. We shall stand and we shall overcome. We shall surely overcome. How are we going to be able to overcome this, um, friend? How are we going to be able to stand um, if uh, the wicked seem to be prospering and it doesn't actually mean that they have it all. One, you must understand that the blessing of life and prosperity itself is not the material things, money, wealth, fame, and pleasure. Not at all. What most of us call prosperity and a blessing, even when, um, strictly speaking, it can be a part of it, it can be a part of it, but fundamentally and ideally, in its essence, the blessing of God is not just uh, material things. It's not just the material prosperity and fame and a name. Not at all. Friend, it isn't. Let me take you to Genesis 12, 1, 3, and let me just show it to you and what it says. 
when God came to Abraham, what did he tell him? He told him, Abraham, leave your land and go to the land that I shall show you. Eh? Leave your, your father's house and your people and go to the land that I shall show you. What did he say? He said, and I shall bless you and I'll give you this land and I'll give you an offspring or I'll give you a people and I shall be your God and I shall be, you shall be my people. You hear that? That is the promise period that God made. And I want you to understand this. The blessing that God gives is a spiritual blessing, friend. And it is a spiritual blessing that surpasses each and everything else. I can elucidate this with scripture. If you go to Acts chapter 3 and verse 24, I can prove this, that actually when God speaks of a blessing, he's not basically speaking of buildings and cars and land and stuff like that. Even when God can give that because he gave a land unto these people as well. But I want to tell you that is not the essence of the blessing of the Lord. Um, Acts chapter 3 and verse 24. Listen to this. The Bible says, Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken um, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets of the covenant God made with your fathers. Which covenant? He said to Abraham, you hear that? Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Now you see the blessing he's talking about. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each one of you from your wicked ways. He's speaking of the raising of Christ, whom he blessed to, he sent to the Israelites to bless them, raising them from their death into life. Ultimately, the blessing that God is speaking of in Abraham is speaking of a blessing of salvation that was going to flow even to the rest of the nations of the world. Essentially, friend, that is what the blessing is. The gospel has simply been proliferated in our generation to the point that people tell you today, you're receiving that money. You're receiving your blessing. You're getting that brown wife. You're getting, even if you have another, you're getting that land. Let us eat the land. Wherever we shall lay our feet, God has given it unto us, quoting scripture out of context. This is the reason you feel like a loser. Why? Because you don't have as much money as your pastor said you'd have. And therefore you feel like you're not blessed enough. Friends, God did not speak of that as a blessing and i don't want to say that god does not provide that he does he made abraham a very rich man to the point that lord uh, the land could not hold them together with lord his nephew you see he made it he made he made him very blessed uh, in, in terms of material provision but ideally this is more of an addition let your heart never get broken because you haven't gotten the material a blessing as we want to call it Someone says, blessed is the man that does not abide with the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor live in the fellowship of scoffers, but in the law of the Lord he, he delights, and in, upon it he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree that is planted by the waters, that bears its fruit in due season, and its leaves never wither. And whatever he does, he is blessed. As far as God is concerned, a blessing means spiritual union with Christ, fellowship with Christ that connects you with the Lord and therefore releases the fullness of life in you. When man fell, there is a devoid that came in his heart. There is a gap. There is a space. You know, there is th th that kind of thing that has to be filled. The people that you see in the world that are doing all these sort of things, you know, cheating and stealing this and stealing the other into corruption, 
person pulling this and pulling the other, they think they can fill up their void, their emptiness on their inside with all those kind of things. But friends, like we're going to see, Solomon says it is vanity and it's like chasing the wind. So someone may seem to have it all, but they have nothing. Jeroboam was so empty within him. He was so empty, friend, like we see this other prophet that was uh, quarreling with, with Amos um, in Amos chapter 7, verse 10. So that, that's the first thing that you need to realize. Secondly, wealth and achievements and prosperity, as we know them, are unable to quench our thirst. Wealth and achievements and prosperity are unable to quench our thirst. When you look at what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, uh, from verse 1 onwards, he shows you that he made very great accomplishments. But in the end, around verse 10, he says all of it was what? Vanity and chasing the wind. It is Solomon uh, that, 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 that it, it, it is written about Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10, I think around verse 27, that silver was like common stone in his day. You see? And in the end, he concludes in Ecclesiastes 12 of 13, and he says the conclusion of the matter is, fear the Lord, obey his commandments. Full stop. As long as you have food and something to, to drink, that is sufficient. Friends, you're wired to derive your satisfaction and life out of the Lord. I want to assure you, it doesn't matter how much money you have. If you're looking for a million, the moment you get it, I want to assure you, you're going to need another and another and another. We've seen rich men that are killing for money. We've seen landlords that are killing neighbors for a plot of land. That is called the, 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 Jezebel, uh, the Jezebel anointing. It is called the Ahab anointing. You are king and you have a palace, but you look out for a plot of land. <laughs> you see that? They, they are not able to satisfy you. Only Jesus can satisfy you because you're wired in a particular way. In Genesis 2-7, God created man from the, 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 the dust of the earth. And it is not until God breathes into him a breath of life that man becomes a what? A living being. From that point, your sustenance comes out of the Lord. And when man sinned and got separated from the Lord, the one only thing that was going to reunite him into life was going to be the restoration through the plan that God himself put up, which was Christ Jesus. So all these other things are unable to fill us up. I mean, how many people have slept with this other woman? Today he has a brown one, and then he's like, I think this one the best, then the other, a, a shorter one, then the other, he wants a Munyarwanda, then the other day, Munyankore, then he sees the child of a Muganda, here he says, those kind of things. What is the satisfaction? Solomon had 1,000. He needed over two years and seven months and over eight days to just visit each one of them. But he says, oh, all of it is vanity. Just love the Lord. And <laughs> you see that? The rides, the cars. I have a friend that has 15 cars. 15. 15. All of them packed in his house, in his compound. 15. <laughs> you're joking. But you know, he's still buying others. You see? So you're not wired to live like that at all. You see, when you get these things, you know the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15? He got his share and off he went, squandered it. And when he got there, he discovered that life is not about these things. The rich man of Luke 12 or 15 onwards, that the Bible speaks about through Christ Jesus. And he says, let me tell you, the life of a man is not in the plenty of things that they have. We've seen great men going down in the dust with nothing. Even before they die down here, there's, there's not much in there. 
But I'm going to show you that the things per se are not the problem, but the position that we give them. There are people that are rich and are godly and are living a good life. Friend, I'm not against someone being rich at all or getting things that have been provided by God. But you know, the wicked, the wicked don't treat things like that. They are arrogant. That is what we see in, in all over in Psalm 37, in, in Psalm 10. They are arrogant. For them, they are things, they are the gods of their lives. Do not be like the wicked. You see that? The next, what is going to help us next is that the wicked, you know, live but for a moment. The wicked live but for a moment, just for a moment. They don't last always. You see? They don't last. Look at um, uh, Proverbs 10, 7. Look at Proverbs 10, 7 and what it says here. In Proverbs 10, 7, the Bible says the name of the righteous is used in blessings, but the name of the wicked will rot. As simple as that. You see, the name of the righteous is used in blessings, but the name of the wicked will rot. They are wicked kings that have ever lived. But right now, if we ask you, where are they? You cannot tell us. And no one is going to use them in a blessing. In Proverbs 3.33, the Bible says, The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. Are we hearing that? Huh? <laughs> yeah. So the name of the righteous lives on. The name of the wicked doesn't. And David says in Psalm 37, 1-3, Do not fret when you see the wicked prospering. Do not lose it at all. Listen to what he says here. Do not fret because of those who are evil. Oh, be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dread in the land and enjoy self-pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Praise the Lord. Do not get, you know, discouraged because the wicked it seems to be making this achievement and the other and the other. Many people are losing their ground in faith because they want to walk by the standard of the world. That is not our portion. It isn't at all, my dear friend. For us, he says, trust the Lord, delight in him, and he'll give you the desires of what? Of your heart. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see? Now, the other thing for you to remember is that the end of the wicked is terrible and is eternal damnation. The end of the wicked is eternal damnation. Let me show you one of my best Psalms in the world of the Bible that I would want to encourage you to learn also. It is Psalm 73. It was written by Asaph. And this man was a genuine believer that loved the Lord that puts him to task. L listen to what he says here. Surely God, Psalm 73 verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, so you think. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. He's speaking like Job here. <laughs> they are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouth lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how could God know? Does the Mosai know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. 
Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure, and have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I'd spoken out like that, <laughs> you hear that? Asaf was getting discouraged because his perspective was the wrong one. He's having a wicked perspective also in a sense. Yeah, he thinks that the wicked are so because God has granted it for the sake of dejecting him. God does not bless the wicked to discourage the, the, the righteous, not at all. Oftentimes, like we saw in Jeroboam's case, God is giving them time to turn around and come back to him. And they often don't see that. And because of that, they end up in damnation. Look at what he finally realizes, what happens to them. He says um, in verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. And then he finally makes a covenant look at what he says. He says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? In earth has nothing I desire besides you. Hallelujah. So Asa finally comes to terms with what God wanted him to understand. He finally looks at all the things of the world and is like, mm -mm, they are nothing. And even in heaven, when it is, even if it is so beautiful, still you're my portion. Friends, that is how we live. When you glory in what is coming, we are focusing on the world to come, on the life to come. You get to a point, according to Romans 5, um, 1 to 5, you get to a point when you're able to glory even in your current perse persecution. And that goes right ahead to cultivate perseverance. And then perseverance will cultivate what? Character in you. And character will give you what? Hope. And then you cannot lose it. Friends, that is how it works. The wicked end up in a terrible way. They really, really end up in a terrible way. Then there is a fulfilling satisfaction in the Lord because your void is filled by him. Your needs are provided for by him. And those that are not provided for as you want are covered in the grace of God. You hear that? <laughs> when you trust the Lord, eh? when you trust him, there is a satisfaction that comes in your life. Friend, this is a practical experience. You need to live it. You need to live it to be able to understand it. You know, he quenches you. In Psalm 63 and verse 3, the Bible teaches and says, your loving kindness, God, is sweeter than life, is greater than life. He says, uh, you, you have made me test of the goodness of your love, of your fat. In verse 5, in Lingala, we say, You've made me test the goodness of, of, of the sweetness of your goodness. That is what he says. We are not even worthy of this. We are not worthy of it, but he makes us test of it. You see, Jesus speaks and he says, He's the bread that came down from heaven that their fathers had partaken or eaten of the manna in the desert, but they died. But when you partake of Jesus, the bread of life, you're satisfied. You're satisfied. He told the woman at the well that when you take of the water that I give, you cannot have your thirst build up again. This is what we mean. I don't know how to explain it further, but there's a rest that I find in Christ. Let me tell you, my goal in life was to be a professor. And when I went to school, I did quite some school. When I went to school, that was my point. 
I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to do school, have a PhD, be somewhere, be a man of honor, make a lot of money, help my mother, help my siblings. That was my intention in life. But friends, when God told me I was going to be a leverant, give up all that stuff, of course not entirely because I do it, give up that stuff, I felt like he had smitten me by my hands and he hit me cold and I felt like maybe life was going out of me. And I clung on to my work for some time and for some years. But friends, a time came when I would go to office, still earn my good salary and get my money and just be like I'm carrying paper way back home. I'm not saying work is bad. I'm simply speaking of my perspective. Up to now, I work. I'm a consultant of development and stuff like that. But when this kind of stuff came and I surrendered totally with the whole of my life, friends, there is not a thing that you can give me in exchange for my call in ministry. It is not there. Yes, I work. I do work because that is a biblical mandate. Men like Paul, we are working. It is biblical for pastors to work. Such when we are not just depending on church. It is biblical. But if you came and you told me I'm giving you 20 billion US dollars, give up your vacation as a pastor and just come and do something else, I won't take a pen of that. Because the joy that I have in Christ, there are days I sit throughout the night and I even did it last night just because of the goodness of the Lord, you want to sleep, but you can't sleep because you're reading this scripture, you're praying, you're reading the other, and you feel you're so filled up with his presence and this love. Sometimes I quarrel with him in a good way and I cry and I tell him, why do you love me so much? Why? And I find myself crying. And the reason is that his love is just too much. I can't explain it. Sometimes, you know, you're basking into too much love and you're, you're there, friends. I don't know how to explain this to you. But the reason many of us are under all this pain is that we are focusing too much on the things of the world and you're not focusing on, you know, the things that are above where Christ is seated on the right hand of the Father. That is why you're engrossing your troubles all the time. Every time you focus on him, as God seated on the throne, on the right hand of the Father, that means he's seated on his exalted position over kingship, reigns, dominions, and every other thing. You get to focus so much on that and you behold his glory to the point that you begin uh, beholding the glory even down here in this persecution and you begin living in so much joy even when you don't have money at that particular time, even when there's a challenge that you're facing. We don't live in a denial, but we are living in the reality of the power of Christ, what he calls the resurrected power or the resurrection power of Romans 8, 11. The same power that resurrected him from the dead is the same power that reigns on our inside and gives you that joy. Friends, as I speak, I don't know how to get worried. I don't. Do I get problems? Find my good friends like Josh and ask them. I do. I get them. But there's not a problem that comes and submerges me. When it has just come, what happens is God has taught me because I was a very worrisome person. I was a person that could get so worried. But when I understood the, 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 the essence of operating in these kingdom principles, friend, there was no turning back and I'm not willing to trade that for anything. Friends, I want to pray that you learn this kind of approach to life. This is what we call 
living life in the spirit and to the fullness of joy. It is possible. Don't let that situation that you're facing at work submerge you and bring you down. What they think about you, what they are saying about you, what is going on right now in your marriage, or even if it is on the verge of breaking. The problem is you're letting it rain over you. You're not reigning you. You're not letting you reign in the resurrected power of Christ that reigns in you. And you're not focusing on him who is way up there. So that is how it works. I told you to be a long message, but uh, you we need to uh, have the whole of it. So that is what God does. I'm reminded of the case of um, Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 5. You know what happened? There was a great man called Naaman. And the Bible says that he had won several, 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 several battles for Aram. He came from Syria. And imagine... A, a little girl had been taken from Israel and taken into Syria as a slave. I want you to listen to this story. And what happened was that this girl that operated under so much anointing and joy, even when she had been taken into a foreign land, as young as she was, she knew the God of Israel and she still operated in a peace. She looked at Naaman one day and talked to her mistress, the wife to Naaman and said, <laughs> How I wish my boss could go to a prophet, to the prophet in our land. Oh, that, that, that thing would have been sorted. In other words, she had the faith of the God of Israel. And look here, as great as Naaman was, as rich as Naaman was, he had no fullness of life because of the leprosy that he had. But if you realize, more so because of his lack of faith in the God of Israel. That is the essence if you look at that story. And then he went, when he heard this story, he went to the king of Aram and the king of Aram ended up writing to the king of Israel. Can you imagine two, four states, enemy states, coordinating on such a divine call? And when this man came, the king did not know what to do. He tore his robes and then Elisha heard and said, you don't have to do that. Just send him to me. He will know that there is a king here, that there is a God here. Of course, a prophet, but speaking of himself, uh, as to imply that uh, there is a powerful God in Israel. Friends, look at the story. So rich is a man, so limited because of his lack of faith, irrespective of his position, he had no peace. If you study Second Kings and go to the Bible calculation scale, you're going to realize that Naaman came with at least 15.2 billion shillings. <laughs> that is what he came with. And after healing, what happened? After receiving his healing, Naaman went to Elisha and he wanted to give him the wall of this money. And what did Elisha say? I don't need a bit of that. I don't need that all. Now listen to this. We have a Naaman that is loaded, has a lot of money, but lacks peace and joy in his life because of his lack of faith in the God of Israel, in Yahweh. And then you have a Gehazi that should have had faith in the God of Israel. Israel in Yahweh, but he picks a little bit from the wealth that Naaman came with. And what does he pick? He picks Naaman's leprosy and takes it even upon his family. Look at Elisha in the middle. Takes nothing, but he's so satisfied in there. Friends, God satisfies. Akusa. He satisfies within us. That is what actually happens. That is what happens. Next, the triumph of the wicked is short-lived. It is very short-lived, very short-lived. In Job 25, uh, Job says in the, uh, that um, here he says that uh, Job um, 25, he says that the mouth of the wicked is brief. 
The joy of the godless lasts but for a moment. Do you want that temporary joy? Do you want that temporary stuff or you want serious stuff, my friend? Look at what Psalm 92, 7 says about the same point. In Psalm 92, verse 7, the Bible says that, um, he says here in verse 7, Psalm 92, that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. You hear that? So in conclusion, what am I saying here? Don't compare yourself with the wicked. Don't. This is what David says in Psalm 37, verse 1. Don't compare yourself with the wicked. They live but only for a short time. Find your satisfaction in the Lord. Obey him and wait upon him. Do the right thing. God knows how to take care of you. Three, focus on the things that are above. I've already explained that. Learn to place your needs with God and rest. Wumula. Next, walk with him as a friend. Talk to him on a second-by-second basis. The problem is we believers only pray in the morning and want to pray later in the evening or at special times. I hear there's an outer church. Let us go for prayer. No. God says he has called us friends in John 15, 14. If we do and obey his commandments, he has called us friends. Now, when you feel outweighed, you go right ahead and you tell him, Daddy, I feel heavy. If you're tempted, tell him it is this girl. If these kind of things are going on, this is what God wants you to do. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? So this is how it works. Finally, at the clock of an hour that I planned today, let me just read these two passages and I will wind up. Um, the first is in Philippians uh, chapter 4 and verse 11. See what Paul gloriously says here. A man that had been through all sorts of weather uh, in terms of the spirit here and spiritual conditions here. He says in Philippians 4, 11, he's like, I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So he writes the same thing to um, his son, Timothy. He doesn't just write to him, but he had learned to live like that. And I want to wind up with First Timothy chapter 6, verse 8 to 10. This is what he says. Let me take it from verse 6. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolishness, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Friends, let us seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the rest of these other things shall be added unto us as he wills. May the Lord bless you. I pray that God will give you satisfaction in whatever you're having. And I pray that God will teach you that having everything without the Lord is having nothing. Just like we saw from Jeroboam's life and the lives of so many people. Father, may you give us contentment and an everlasting abiding joy in every situation. A four-wheel drive joy. A joy that is focused on our relationship with you. A joy that is focused on our connection on the things that are above. That will give us an anointing of focusing and glorying even in the persecution that is down here. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our prayer. I want to pray for my sisters, my brothers that are worried, that are tormented 
united at work right now. They see the wicked prospering. People who are cheating are the ones that are prospering. They see the wicked prospering and it is discouraging them. Young ladies that are not married yet, they see the wicked prospering. They see the, the wannabes and they look at the slave queens prospering. I want to pray that God will encourage you. You who is faithful, you are going to reap without recompense. You're going to reap without losing. You're going to reap um, because the Lord is faithful in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you. May he strengthen you in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone that doesn't know Christ Jesus, I pray that will accept him. Tell him, dear Lord, I accept you today as Lord and Savior. I take my trust and confidence from the rest of the things of the world and I'm placing it in you. Give me satisfaction. Fill me up, O King of Glory. In Jesus' mighty name, I have prayed and believed. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.